Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the history of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon and this is episode 7. Go East, young man, or Sviatoslav, part 1. Thanks for listening in. Last time we covered the life and times of Igor, son of Rurik whose greed, recklessness and downright foolishness brought about his gruesome demise as he was literally torn apart by the Grevlians in the year 945. And then we covered the regency of Olga, Igor's wife, who took over in Kiev, now the capital of the Rus lands in all but name, ruthlessly avenged her husband's death carried out wholesale administrative reforms, converted to Christianity, and generally kept things on an even keel until her son Sviatoslav came of age. So in the next two episodes, yes, two episodes, we'll look at the life of Sviatoslav starting today with his early years, his accession to power, his stance on religion, and his first military campaigns, And you'll probably be pleased to hear that there will be no mention of a raid on Constantinople, or Constantinople, as I almost said a couple of times in the last episode. And then in the second part, we'll look at his later campaigns, this time to the west in the Balkans. So guess what next week's episode's going to be called? And then his eventual demise, failure to establish a secure succession, and finally his reputation and legacy. Now, Sviatoslav is only going to be around until 972. I know, sorry for spoiling things. Which is a reign of only nine years, so why does he get the two-part treatment? Well, he crammed an awful lot into those nine years, and I think that there's more to him than first meets the eye. His military successes resulted in the massive extension of Kievan territory, and at last the sources that cover the period are a little clearer, a little less patchy, And things just generally seem to add up, which means that I can go into things in a bit more detail and with a bit more confidence. Okay, Paidiom, let's meet Sviatoslav. And first off, what's in a name? Well, the primary chronicle proudly states that Sviatoslav was the first ruler of the Rus with the name of Slavic origin, as opposed to those of his predecessors, which were all Norse in origin. And this is backed up by some scholars who see the name of Sviatoslav as being composed of the Slavic root words for holy and glory, a construct that simply combines the names of Oleg and Rurik, whose names meant holy and glorious, respectively, in Old Norse. And this could be true, but there's no record of this particular name being used anywhere else prior to this period. And very little is known about Sviatoslav's childhood, and early youth. His birth is recorded as being in the year 943, and we're told that he spent most of the 950s and maybe the very early 960s as a kind of figurehead or surrogate, safely tucked away up in Novgorod, maybe for his own safety, 
whilst Olga based herself in Kiev and looked after the day-to-day -day running of the Rus territories. It's also recorded that he was tutored by a Varangian named Asmud, and interestingly, this tradition of employing Varangian tutors for the sons of ruling princes survived well into the 11th century and maybe served as a kind of touchstone with the values and traditions of the folks from the old country. And it's possible that Sviatoslav was not the only or the eldest son of child or child of Igor and Olga. The Rus-Byzantine Treaty of 945 mentioned someone called Predslava, the wife of a certain Volodislav, as the noblest of Rus women, after Olga. I was all scratching my head there. I was wondering why any of that would be in a treaty, but there we go. And some historians speculate that this Volodislav was actually Igor and Olga's eldest son, an heir, who died at some point during Olga's regency. Whilst others indicate that Sviatoslav had a number of sisters who either died young or whose names simply weren't recorded, but like so much else in this period, we don't really know. Anyway, as he got into his late teens and early twenties, Sviatoslav started to get impatient with going through the motions up in Novgorod, and he was starting to spend more and more time with his Druzhina, which roughly translated means company or brotherhood. And they would go off raiding neighbouring villages and tribes and fighting with anyone who happened to get in their way. And according to the primary chronicle, he travelled light. No wagons or any other unnecessary paraphernalia, just horses and weapons. And apparently he cooked no meat. Instead, he cut off small strips of horseflesh, game or beef to eat after roasting it on the coals of an open fire. And he didn't have a tent. Rather, he'd spread out a horse blanket underneath him and he'd set his saddle under his head. And all of his retinue did likewise. So what do we make of this? Well, young Sviatoslav and his cronies seem to have been a bit hardcore. They sound like the kind of people that you would stay away from as much as you could. And if they did suddenly appear in your vicinity, you'd keep your head down, your eyes averted, and hope that they didn't stay around for too long. He's also the first of the Rus for whom we actually have a physical likeness as his appearance was described very clearly by the Byzantine Leo the Deacon, who attended a summit meeting between Sviatoslav and the Emperor John I Tsimiskis that took place in the latter stages of Sviatoslav's reign. And here we get an image of a bright-eyed man of average height, but of heavy, thick-set build. He had a bald head and a wispy beard, and he wore a bushy moustache, and a sidelock as a sign of his nobility. And apparently he preferred to dress in white, and it was noted that his garments were much cleaner than those of his men, and that he wore a single large gold earring bearing a red gemstone and two pearls. And my take from that description is that he looks something like an oriental pirate. But I reckon that just before meeting the emperor and Leo, he puts on his best clean, sparkling white clothes to create a good impression. And Leo thinks that this is perhaps his normal day-to-day -day clothing. Who knows? Sviatoslav had several children and at least three sons. Uh, there was Yarapolk, who was born in 952, which is unlikely as his father was only nine, if we accept the year of birth as 943 for Sviatoslav. And Oleg, born in around 957, 
when Sviatoslav was 14, which is just about possible, and we're told that the mother of both of these sons was his wife, Predslava. And then we have Vladimir. Vladimir is someone we're going to be hearing a lot, a lot of. Maybe not next week, but certainly in the coming episodes after that. Uh, Vladimir was born in either 958 or 959. Uh, His mother was a woman called Matusha. Um, And not just Vladimir, we'll hear more about all three sons um, in the next episode. But certainly in the episodes after that, Vladimir takes a star turn. Okay, let's backtrack a bit. We visit a chunk of what we covered last week, but in a little bit more detail. So Sviatoslav's mother Olga visited Constantinople in the year 957, when Sviatoslav was around 14 years old, and she supposedly converted to Orthodox Christianity at the court of the Byzantine Emperor Constine Porphyrogenitus. And the Porphyrogenitus means born in the purple, which means that he was born when his father Leo was already emperor even though he was technically illegitimate, so work that one out. And we speculated, or at least I did, as to what the real reasons for this visit were, particularly as when Olga returned to Kiev, she had a couple of goes at trying to persuade her son to also convert. And remember, he said that he couldn't because his men would laugh at him. Anyway, she tried again, and he continued to refuse, And actually, for the rest of his life, he remained a die-hard pagan. But importantly, he stated that he wouldn't persecute anyone else who did convert. Then, again as I said last week, two years later, 959, Olga sends envoys to the court of the Holy Roman Emperor Otto I, and these envoys request that he appoints a bishop and priests for the Rus nation. And so, a further two years down the road, in 961, Bishop Adalbert of Magdeburg was sent to Kiev to fulfil the earlier request. But before he could really settle into the job, he was expelled from Kiev by the now 18-year-old father of three, Sviatoslav. So what do we make of this? Well, to me there's a hint that the deal between Olga and Constantine appears to have been conditional upon a further conversion to Christianity starting maybe with Sviatoslav himself, and then with Byzantine help, the rest of Kievan Rus. But that when this wasn't going completely to plan, the Byzantines started to get cold feet, and maybe lost interest. So because of that, Olga decides to get help from Otto. But crucially, by the time that Adalbert arrived to start the ball rolling in 961, the political dimension in Kiev had dramatically changed. And Sviatoslav and his party were now in the ascendancy, and Olga and her group were pushed into the background with a, thanks mum, I'll take it from here. So, and here's the point I've been labouring towards for the last few minutes. Why did Sviatoslav make this move in either 960 or 961? Well, it could simply be that he's 18, as mentioned. He's officially come of age, and probably he's being spurred on by his drujina to take what is rightfully his, so that they can all get on and put their more adventurous plans into action, and more of those adventurous plans in a minute. Or, he's had enough of all this conversion palaver, and whilst he's willing to accept the limited conversion of others, he doesn't want things getting out of control, 
and neither does he want foreigners, either from Byzantium or from the West, wandering around in Kievan territory. Or, and as I suspect, it's probably a bit of both. Anyway, whatever the reasons, the main sources have Sviatoslav completely in charge of things by 962 or 963, with his coronation of sorts taking place in 964. So maybe there were a couple of years where things were in the balance, both Olga and her son tried to rule jointly in some kind of messy compromise, we don't really know. But certainly after the coronation, Olga is very much in the background. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, good. Sviatoslav is now in sole control of the Rus, and he's itching to get back to his life of pillaging and raiding, but not the relatively lightweight skirmishing of his teenage years, because now he's got bigger fish to fry, as he wants to control the Volga trade routes to his east. And to do that, he's got to get rid of the key power in that part of the world, the Khazars. Now the sources are not clear about the roots of the conflict between the Rus and the Khazars and tend to gloss over them, but I think it's worth looking at what could be the possible causes. And from what I've been able to piece together, the key reasons or aims, and there are no real surprises here, are power and money, and how the Rus can get more of both, and then there's the longer term aim, which is to expand Rus territory, but you could argue that this would come about as a direct result of achieving the more power and money bit. The Rus have always had an interest in removing the Khazar hold on the Volga trade route because the Khazars collected duties from all of the goods transported and this is starting to stick in Sviatoslav's craw. But why attempt to change the status quo now? I mean, for many years the Rus and Khazars have warily tolerated one another and both have reaped the advantages of the trade with Byzantium. Yeah, there have been points in their relationship where they haven't gotten along, but that's business. It's nothing personal. But now in the mid-960s, the Rus sense a change or a shift in the political dynamic of the Pontic Steppe, as the on-off, but mainly on, Byzantine-Khazar alliance has ended. And historians have suggested that this was due to the fact that there had recently been some widespread persecution of the Jews in Byzantium. Well, why is this important? Well, a couple of episodes ago, I disputed the wholesale conversion of the Khazars to Judaism, and whilst I'm still pretty sure that that didn't happen, 
Well, it certainly didn't happen in the way that it was stated it happened, you know, with the competition between Judaism, Islam and Christianity. There does seem to be a case for stating that enough Khazars did convert, as this bout of Byzantine persecution of the empire's Jews seems to have been enough to rattle the Khazars' cages. And there's also evidence that the Byzantines may have incited the Rus' against the Khazars, although we're not 100% sure why or what the incentives were. The chronicle suggests that this was something that was implicitly stated in the Treaty of 945. Or it could have been that the Empire wanted to tie down both the Rus and the Khazars, keep them occupied and at each other's throats. And then finally, there's the motive of revenge. Remember that back in 913, the Rus, who were maybe led by Sviatoslav's father Igor, had set out on a raid against the Arabs in modern-day Iran. And then on the way back, they were ambushed by the Khazars, who pretty much massacred them all. Now, this had happened over 50 years ago, which is a long time to bear a grudge. But then again, history is littered with all kinds of bitter disputes that have festered on throughout the ages, sometimes for hundreds of years. So, again, who knows? But with all of that said, I'm sticking with money, power and with an undercurrent of Byzantine interference. Anyway, that's enough pontificating for one episode. We're told that Sviatoslav kicks things off by trying to rally the East Slavic vassal tribes of the Khazars to his cause, and that any who would not join him were attacked and forced to pay tribute to the Kievan Rus instead. According to a legend recorded in the Primary Chronicle, Sviatoslav sent a message to the chiefs of these tribes, consisting of the single phrase, I want, or, probably better, I'm going to come at you, which you have to agree is direct, to the point, and leaves very little room for misinterpretation. And so, with these peoples either on his side or effectively neutered, he kicked off the main event. In 965, using mainly Pechenig mercenaries, who we are told were persuaded by both the Rus and the Byzantines that it would be a good idea to be involved, and they attacked the key allies of the Khazars, the Volga Bulgars. And then once the Bulgars had been effectively taken out of the game, the main Rus hordes swooped down on the Khazar settlements of Sarkel and Kerch. Kerch was sacked but not occupied. However, in Sarkel, Sviatoslav established a Rus settlement called Belaya Vieja, the White Tower or the White Fortress. Next, he destroyed the Khazar capital of Attil. And to get a picture of what destroyed actually meant, we have the following quote from someone who visited the region soon after the Rus campaign had ended. And I quote, The Rus attacked, and no grape or raisin remained nor was a single leaf left on a branch. Which does paint a picture of sorts, but surely leaves out some of the more pertinent and obvious details related to the sacking of a so-called city. But I'll leave that to your imagination. And then finally, the Rus sack and destroy a place called Samandar. But Sviatoslav sees no need to occupy the Khazar heartlands because he can see that the Khazars who have long been on the wane, are effectively finished as a regional power. Although having said that, some do remain on the fringes of their former territory, 
and are reported to have still been around in the early 13th century. So the campaign's finished. On his way back to Kiev, and almost as an afterthought, Sviatoslav chose to strike against a people called the Ossetians, who were distant relatives of the Sarmatians that I mentioned back in episode 2, and just for the fun of it, he forced them into subservience too. So this lightning-fast, brutal and highly effective destruction of Khazar imperial power paved the way for Kievan Rus to dominate all of the north-south trade routes through the steppe and across the Black Sea, routes that formerly had been a major source of revenue for the Khazars. And the success of the campaign led to increased Slavic settlement in the region, which greatly changed the demographics and culture of this historically transitional area. But having said all of that, there is some date-based controversy, as the exact chronology of Sviatoslav's Khazar campaign is uncertain, with some scholars questioning the order in which the Khazar settlements were attacked, and others stating that the period in which the campaign took place was from around 964 until 969. I doubt that that was the case though. We pretty much know, and you'll find out next week, that Sviatoslav was back in Kiev and on his way to the Balkans in 967, or at the latest 968. But like I've said, we'll cover that in further detail next time. I said at the beginning of this episode that there was more to Sviatoslav than met the eye. But as we progressed through the first half, I was wondering whether or not to believe the hype, as it seemed to me that we were dealing with, at best an immature, irresponsible troublemaker, and at worst, a hardcore thug with psychopathic tendencies a la Tony Soprano. But then, just as now, some people have to grow up fast, and I have to admit that whilst the takeover in Kiev and the refusal to convert, coupled with the plan to take out the Khazars, may have seemed spontaneous knee-jerk actions, it now appears that all of these events were based on a clear grasp of the geopolitical landscape and form part of a well-thought-out strategy or master plan. And just on the point of conversion to Christianity, surely an irresponsible thug would have had no interest in not persecuting those in Kiev who decided to go down the righteous path. And then finally, the speed and ruthlessness of the Khazar campaign itself, which I think shows more of the same cool strategic thinking and planning, take out or new to the vassal tribes, keep the Volga Bulgars occupied, and then go for the jugular. And we should also note that he's been successful in other departments. He's got at least three sons who can keep things going in the right direction long term. But there is a slight area of concern, though, because maybe Sviatoslav has just been too successful. Certainly too successful for the Byzantines, who I'm sure probably expected and would have preferred the Rus and the Khazars to become occupied in a lengthy stalemate with both sides becoming weakened. So it's back to the drawing board for the Empire, who now need to come up with a plan to keep the Rus occupied and out of their hair. But that's not going to be easy, as Fiatasar's stock has risen massively and his confidence is sky high. And that's where we'll leave it for this week. Next time we'll see if the results of this Byzantine strategic planning can come up with something, anything, that keeps the Rus busy. Plus we'll get to see Olga's swan song 
and there'll also be a bit of a problem with the Pechenegs, who see an opportunity for making trouble whilst Sviatoslav is away campaigning in Bulgaria. Okay, before I go, just a quick reminder that the podcast website is historyofrussia.podbean.com and this week I'll be adding a map showing Sviatoslav's eastern campaigns and a new timeline listing the accepted dates for those that have been ruling the Rus thus far. And then if you want to get in touch, then you can in a number of different ways and it'd be great to hear from you. So via the website or you can now comment or follow me on Twitter at HistoryRussia1 or follow me or subscribe, follow on whichever platform you listen in on. And then of course there's good old email which is nordicworld at outlook.com So I've bunged a lot of information at you there. I'll put it all in the notes for the episode that uh, I'm going to post in a couple of hours time. And If you're feeling generous, it would be really great if you could leave me a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. This kind of thing really helps. I know it's a bit onerous, but it really does help to make the podcast more visible. Okay, hope you enjoyed listening. That's it for this episode. Join me next time for Sviatoslav Part 2. And then stay safe, look after yourself, and I'll see you soon.